the table. Students as well, uh, we are now meeting in the loft, right, uh, in the second service, not down in the gym. So don't go to the gym this morning, go to the loft. All right, let me begin. Uh, uh, being gr- uh, graduate celebration Sunday, I-, I had to think through, you know, really what I wanted to talk about. And I really want to talk about what a meaningful life before God is to graduates, but also as a church, what God calls us to. And really, as I thought about it, uh, I was really just, I kept asking the question, what do I want Bryce to hear 16 years from now? What do I want him to know when he's walking out of high school into, into college or into a trade or whatever it is that God has for him? What, is, what do I want him to know? And so I, I, I kept going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verses 9 through 12. So if you would open your Bibles to that, please. That's where we're going to be this morning. And, uh, and I want us to talk about that. What does it mean to live a life that pleases God? And as you're going there, uh, I would also like to read a short excerpt from an article. And then we're going to move on with what we're digging into. So let me read this article real quickly. Longtime acquaintances confirmed to reporters this week that local man Michael Husmer, an unambitious 29-year-old loser who leads an enjoyable and fulfilling life, still lives in his hometown and has no desire to leave. Claiming that the aimless slouch has never resided more than two hours from his parents and still hangs out with friends from high school, sources closer, close to Husmer reported that the man who has meaningful, lasting personal relationships and a healthy work-life balance is an unmotivated washout who's perfectly comfortable being a nobody for the rest of his life. I've known Mike my whole life and he's a good guy, but it's pretty pathetic that he's still living on the same street he grew up on and experiencing a deep sense of personal satisfaction, childhood friend David Gorman said of the unaspiring, completely gratified do-nothing. As soon as Mike graduated from college, he moved back home and started working at a local insurance firm. Now he's nearly 30 years old, living in the exact same town he was born in, working at the same small-time job, and is extremely intimate or has extremely contented in all aspects of his home and professional lives. It's really sad. Additionally, pointing to the intimate, enduring connections he's developed with his wife, parents, siblings, and neighbors, sources reported that Husmer's life is pretty humiliating on multiple levels. Husmer's ordinary life is debt-free, and he's perfectly content to stay put while many of his high school friends go off to the bright lights in big cities. He doesn't care about impressing total strangers every day as he climbs the corporate ladder when he can invest in the lives of those closest to him. He doesn't have a thousand friends on Facebook, just a close family and a circle of friends in town. I'm just glad I got out of there and didn't end up like Mike, said Husmer's cousin, an attorney at a large law firm who hasn't seen Husmer her closest childhood playmate for nearly six years. The last thing I'd ever want is to have a loving family member nearby, feel a sense of pleasure when reflecting on my life, and be the big failure that everyone runs into when they visit home once a year for the holidays. I hope you know that's satire. And I read that because as satirical as that is, it's really kind of the unspoken message of the amount of pressure that we place in America today just on on people in general. We're, we're a go big, go home people. You know, we're, we, everything's got to be bigger. Everything's got to be better. Uh, especially, I know as graduates, I've felt that pressure just in the last, you know, 10 to 12 years of, you know, what, what are you going to do with your life? You, you know, you need to go big. You need to win big. You need to get that dream job and you need to land in that great home and you've got to have that great family and you've got to, everything's got to be great. And it's exhausting. 
And as I talk about this, I'm just, I mean, I've been going like crazy this morning. It's not that being uh, working hard is bad or anything, but I'm just, I'm feeling the busyness already. Um, but the, the pressure in America is to be radical or to be extraordinary. And, and it's what we call, uh, what they would call existential, existential angst. And what that is, is that's just a phrase that captures the uncertainty or the anxiety that has arisen from the secularization of America. Here's what I mean. Over the last hundred, you know, 200 years, atheism as well as secularism in general, meaning the, the, the society has become less Christian and moved towards more just godlessness in our thinking. As we've moved there, and as you take God out of the picture, what arises is a worldview that essentially says, well, if God does not exist, nothing matters. And so what was, the, what was the scholastic response to, well, if nothing matters, then I really don't know what to do with my life. They created a worldview called existentialism, which is just a way of saying, I exist, that's all I can know, and therefore I must determine my purpose. So that's all that word means. I exist, therefore I determine my purpose. And so what's happened out of that is this come, I've got to be bigger, I've got to make my life mean something, because if I don't, I've wasted it. And here's some of the quotes you'll hear that are loaded with this sort of anxiousness about big impact. Your life is your message to the world. Make sure it's inspiring. Make your life count. Life isn't always perfect. It's what you make it. Life's what you make it, so let's make it rock. Hannah Montana, anyone? No? But I want you to see, culturally, it's laced in what we watch. I mean, this is a kid's show. It was, gosh, 10 years ago, maybe? I don't know. But it's laced with existential ideas. Stop waiting for Friday, for summer, for someone to fall in love with you, for life. Happiness is achieved when you stop waiting for it and make the most of the moment you're in now. And so we might be tempted to say, well, as believers, we don't wrestle with that. Well, uh, we, we, we know God, and uh, as much as I would like to say that's the case, I think it's absolutely normal for us to, to be influenced by the culture that we live in. And we fall into this existential angst as well. And, and I, I remember when I first became a Christian, maybe two years uh, into it, I, I was riding in a van on a mission trip. We were traveling around the U.S., and this is definitely like go big, go home sort of ministry. And I just remember thinking, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to do because of my sin. I just don't know what to do. I can't defeat it. I have it in me. And then it dawned on me that I was trying to live in the anxiousness of trying to get rid of my sin on my own. And instead of trusting Jesus who paid for my sin, what I was doing is I was, I was stuck in the circle of anxiousness that, that made me think, I've just got to go busy. I'm just going to be busy. The more I can keep busy, the more I can do for God, the less I'll, I'll want to sin and things like that. And I realized I had fallen into the same legalism that drove the Pharisees on the other side of the circle. You know, and so anxiousness that drives busyness is something all of us have experienced. I heard a quote the other day. It said, it is an American idea that if God is in a thing, it will automatically prosper. And while there's truth to that, what the quote means is that a lot of times we assume that if God's going to bless something, it means it's got to be big and it's got to be huge and it's got to be great. Uh, But the truth is, um, we're just busy. And as graduates, I think about you guys, and it's just as Americans, I think about the, the busyness and the pressure to make your life count for something that we all walk in in, in this uh, culture, and, and uh, I get exhausted. I think I talk to many people who are exhausted. One uh, secular article talking about people who wear busyness as a badge of honor said this, 
Notice that those complaining about being busy aren't generally people pulling back-to-back shifts in the ICU or commuting by bus to three minimum wage jobs who tell you how busy they are. What those people are is not busy, but tired, exhausted, dead on their feet. It's almost always people whose lamented busyness is self-imposed. Work and obligation that they've taken voluntarily, classes and activities they've encouraged their kids to participate in, they're busy because of their own ambition or drive or anxiety, because they're addicted to busyness and dread what they might have to face in its absence. Furthermore, the article laments the pressure we place on our children. Nobody says, my kid is only average at academics, but he's kind to everyone. Imagine the eye roll any parent brave enough to make such a statement would receive. So go big or go home, right? That's kind of the, the mantra, and, it, and I've heard it my whole life. I don't know how far back it's gone, but, but we're just in a, we need bigger, we need better, we need uh, faster and harder and, and just more extreme. And, and so as I thought about that, I, I, this text kept coming to me, 1 first, first Thessalonians chapter 4, 9 through 12. And let me just read to you what, what Paul says, but before I do, just a little bit about what's going on. The Thessalonians were, were uh, a fairly young church, not necessarily in age, but just in, they were uh, fairly new believers or newer believers. Uh, there was a result of Paul's missionary journeys there. And, and one of the things they had just become captured by was Christ's second coming. They were just obsessed with their, the, the fact that Jesus was coming back. So much so that they fell into the existential crisis of, well, my work is meaningless, If Jesus is coming back, why work? If Jesus is coming back, what good are the mundane tasks of providing for myself and and taking care of a a routine job and things like that? And Paul's response is is actually quite the opposite. Hey, actually, Jesus' return means you do work. But we want to look at what he says about that work. So let me read 9 through 12 this morning. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, I want to clarify something. Theology matters. Okay, That's just a big word for your view of God. Everyone has a theology. Everyone has a view of God. So what we just read are Paul's commands. But Paul's commands are rooted in his view of God. We're not going to dig into it, but the next thing that comes is Paul's review of Jesus' return. So if you want to know what Jesus is going to do when he returns, there's a lot of it right there because what had happened was the Thessalonians knew he was coming back and they were worried about some people that had died and they also weren't doing the work that they should do and they were just in this circle of anxiousness and they had become busybodies. And so what Paul does is he says, hey guys, here's what you need to do. You need to love one another. You need to work hard simply and and you need to, to do it for outsiders as well. But then he goes on and he explains why. And the why is connected to his view of God. So what I want you to to understand is that everything that we do is tied to our belief in God. And so we need to have a correct theology in order to live properly. Romans 12.2 says, be transformed, right? Be, Be metamorphed by the renewing of your mind. Because how you think determines how you live. 
And so we need to dig into the Word, and we need to be thinking rightly about God. Jesus says in John 17, 17, He says, Lord, sanctify them by the truth. Your Word is truth. In other words, proper holiness to grow in holiness for the Lord is to come about as a result of the truth of God's Word. So here's what He's saying. We need to take our view of God, work in light of it, but here's the deal. The theology of knowing that Jesus is coming back doesn't free us from our labors. It anchors our labors. If you wonder what your day-to-day job has to do with Christ's return, that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying because of Christ's return, that's why we need to be diligent workers. That's why we need to focus on our jobs. Your job has everything to do with your ministry. Please don't separate those. That's our tendency, and we want to just load up even more. We're saying, okay, here's my job, but then here's all my holy activities. There's, that's a false dichotomy. There's no division there. What Paul is saying is because of Christ's return, we take our jobs seriously. So here's what he says. When the world tells you to go bigger, go home, you know, you got to do bigger, you got to do better. And, and hear me, mission trips are good. Um, uh, we're, having a great job is good. Landing great degrees is good. All those things are good. But that's not our goal in life all the time. Right? That, those are, the extremes are not the routines. We live in the routines the majority of our life. And the gospel has everything to do with the routines. Uh, and that's what leads to those big moments. So Paul is bringing them in and saying, let's focus on the routine. So when the world says, go home, go big or go home, Paul says, God is big, so go home. In other words, because God is big, the small mundane tasks of life matter. I heard um, a quote this morning. It was, everybody wants to do something, or everybody wants to change the world, but nobody wants to do the dishes, right? Not realizing that it's the small tasks that lead to the changing of the world. See, Paul sets ordinary expectations for Christians because he has high expectations of God. When you have a high view of God, then you trust him to work through small tasks. When you have a low view of God, you become dependent on you. I become dependent on me. When I don't think God can do it, I have to become impressive. When I don't think God can do it, I've got to land the best job, or I've got to do all the work, I've got to do it all. But Paul's saying, no, we have a massive God, and so we are going to work quietly and simply and focus on the work that he's done for us and will do through us. So he gives us three foundations. So if I could sum up this message today, in a world that's pressuring us to be radical, graduates, church, Man, it's okay to be ordinary. I just want you to know that. Because Platt had a great book called Radical, and it talked about you know, the need to go and do overseas missions. Spot on, excellent book. But for most of us, we're going to live ordinary Christian lives, working ordinary jobs, and, and being ordinary missionaries. And that is not a lower task. That is the work God calls us to. So I want to encourage us this morning, be okay to be ordinary. Jesus is the extraordinary in our life. So three things. Paul, Paul tells us, he draws our, our attention here through, we are to be a part of an ordinary church through ordinary living with an ordinary mission. That's what he's calling us to. So number one, ordinary church. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you've no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing throughout all Macedonia. 
Now, what he's doing here is he's talking about love. You know the city of Philadelphia is the word for brotherly love. That's the Greek word he uses here, love of the brothers. And so he's talking about what the point of being a part of a church is. The whole point of being a church is that you would love one another. He's contrasting that with the cheaper form of love that he just talked about before this. He talks about sexual immorality and the need to honor God with our bodies. All right. At the beginning of chapter 4, he tells us... um, how you, he, he basically sets up what he's doing here. He says, I, I want you to know how to please God. And he says, number one, we're going to avoid sexual immorality. But then he moves on down. He says, in the place of sexual immorality, we are to be a people committed to loving the local church. So graduates, my call for you this morning is find a local church wherever you are and love it. Be a part of it. The type of love that it's talking about here, this brotherly love, is, is, is an intimate love. It's a, it's a knowing one another. You have to be in one another's lives to know the burdens each other's facing in order to be able to love one another. It's not just a, hey, I bought you this because I know you needed it. That's an expression of love, but it's a much deeper form of love that involves an actual intimacy emotionally, which means you're struggling with one another, right? Jesus says that, that his kingdom of, in his kingdom of God, we're going to weep with those who weep. And we're going to rejoice with those who rejoice. And so Paul says, you, you're, the part of your life here, what I want you to do more and more of is I want you to be engaged in brotherly love. The, the aim of ordinary Christian life is that you'd be a part of an ordinary church where you love ordinary people in ordinary, mundane, routine relationships. If you know a mom who's struggling with the housework or, or, or who's struggling with her job or struggling with her kids, you need to get in their, in their relationship and you need to love them and help lead them and, and build them up. And, and if you know a dad who, who doesn't know what he's going to do for a job and he's struggling, you need to love him and help him out. Or if you know teenagers who, who are not connecting, our call is to love them and to invite them in to the body of believers. We're called to take responsibility for our relationships, right? kind of different than, than what America d- treats churches as today. Um, we treat churches in America as a buffet of services that we attend, right? It's, hey, you know, I don't like this church because it doesn't have X activity, or uh, what do you have in it for me? Uh, I don't, what do you mean? I've got God's Word, and you're called to love people. Let's open it together and just love one another. We're blessed to have a church on every corner, but just because the bride is on every corner does not mean we should treat it as a prostitute by which we go around and expect all of these different things to be done for us. We are the church. We are the body. And the way that we come together as the church is not by saying, what's in it for me? We say, who can I love? Because Jesus is all that's in it for us. Jesus died for us. He's what satisfies us. You cannot find satisfaction in the church. Satisfaction is in Christ, and that's what gives me the power and the ability to love broken people. You will not love me if you base your love for me on how good I perform for you. I'm going to let you down. I will fail. I will be mean at times. I will come up short at times. I will get impatient at times. I cannot be loved by performing right for you. I can't do it. And nobody here can. You can't perform perfectly for the people here. Parents, you can't be perfect for your kids. Kids, you can't be perfect for your parents. We are paid for in Christ. He is our delight, not our performance. And that's why we gather as a church. is because we are here under a Savior who has died for us. And so we come together to sing about Him. Not to say, what will they do for me? We're saying, look at what He's done. And that's what empowers me to love It's not a YMCA. It's a place for broken people 
who are tired of fighting sin and who need the good news of Jesus Christ, not the good news of our activities, though they are good. They need Christ. Paul Washer says it like this, Imagine, men, if some thugs snuck into your home, kidnapped your wife, and they took the clothes that you gave her off of her, and they dressed her in prostitutes' clothes, and they put her on the corner. Of course the world's going to come to her. Of course the world is going to come. But the greatest barrier to our love for one another is not the problems within the local church. It's our tendency to try to dress it up like something that our flesh wants rather than a place for where we can be broken together, confess sin to one another, and encourage one another in the Word and go out and live on mission. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, Love does not insist on its own way, but it endures all things. If you're going to be a part of an ordinary church, you're going to need a high view of Jesus and realize that the church is going to be in heaven not because it performs well. It's going to be in heaven because Christ has died for for his bride. And so we have to have our sights set on him in order to love the local church. And so what keeps you? What keeps you from loving your local church? Is it that maybe it doesn't satisfy, satisfy your busyness, maybe, or, or satisfy the, the angst inside of you. That angst is meant to be taken to Jesus, not to the church. Is the word being preached? Praise God. That's what we are here to do and hear. Is it a place where people press you on in faithfulness who are loving you? That's all we're to be. And we're to help one another in love. Paul reminds them to endure in this love more and more. But here's what it's going to require. If we're going to be a people who love one another, we're going to have to slow down. Sometimes we want the church to plan activities because we don't have time to be engaged in one another's lives socially. And we want something that will make a quick fix so we can connect quickly rather than taking the, the effort that it takes to really get into one another's lives. When's the last time you had some members over to your home? When's the last time you went over to another member's home? This is how we love one another, by slowing down and opening our lives. If we're too busy, if we're out doing activity after activity, we're not going to have time to really know one another. We can't be out every night if we're going to be loving one another. We need, if we are going to be out, we need to be pursuing one another, not you know, church on Sundays and, and occasionally Wednesdays and then just going everywhere. Um, we need to be getting together outside of here and loving one another. And this is what Jesus tells us, right? John 13, 35, by this... All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So at graduates, the call is to love one another. The church, love an ordinary church. That's all we're called to do here. One of the critiques you hear against family ministry is that there's not going to be a place for lost kids. And uh, a pastor I'd heard responded to that by going, what, what do you mean? Where are the lost kids now? Like, Where are we going to take them if we don't have a, a place for them? Well, what are the lost kids seeing now? Right now, when lost youth come into your Christian youth group and they see almost the exact same thing they see in their home. No parents, kids teaching kids. But what would happen if lost youth came into your church and they saw children there, the youth, in loving, wonderful relationships with their parents? They would go, whoa, I've never seen that before. Look at him. His dad loves him. He loves his dad. Is this Christianity? That is modeling the ordinary love for the body that attracts the world. When we have a love that the world does not have, we have a love towards one another. When the world says, well, parents and teens are meant to hate each other during this time. No, that's not the gospel's response. 
We love one another, and it's going to be hard at times, but we press on to strengthen those loving relationships towards one another. So, it is by teaching Christian love in ordinary relationships that the world knows we are Christians. So, husbands, are you busy trying to work on your promotion at work by being super faithful to that? But in your internet browser, you're being unfaithful to some adulterous woman you see online. Teens, are you arguing for deeper intimacy? But you stay up late on Saturday nights, and so you're exhausted when it comes time to coming to church and building relationships. Are you wanting opportunities to grow in your faith while you refuse to love those in your home, which is the battle of faith that God has given you? Are we seeking opportunities to go on a mission trip while our neighbors ten yards from us are destined to hell and have never heard the gospel from us? May we, in our angst, run to Jesus and love the people nearest to us, not always looking at the grass that's greener on the other side. Michael Horton says, We're growing bored with the ordinary means of God's grace, attending church week in and week out. Doctrines and disciplines that have shaped faithful Christian witness in the past are often marginalized or substituted with newer fashions or methods. The new and improved may dazzle us for the moment, but soon they become so last year. When God becomes small, in our view, we ask the church to become big. Don't look for the biggest and flashiest church. Go to a church that you can love ordinary people and be a part of an ordinary family. That honors God. It honors God. If all you were to ever do is be a part of a church that loved one another, that's enough. Number two, ordinary living. Uh, Paul says in verse 11, he says, Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you. I know teenagers, you hear all the time, what are your dreams, what are your aspirations, what are you aiming for? Paul uses that word here, he says, aspire, and then he, he, he contrasts it, right? He contradicts it, essentially. He says, aspire to be quiet. And that's intentional. His point is, make it your goal to live a focused, simple life. Aspire to be focused and quiet. They had come, the Thessalonians had come up with forms of pseudo-busyness. Instead of focusing on the tasks at hand, the tasks of like taking care of their home, the task of working their job, uh, the task of being a routine citizen, they had denied themselves those works. Instead, they were just coming up with ways to muster up people, and they were causing trouble. And so Paul is saying, guys, focus on the work in front of you. Focus on doing the dishes. Focus on mowing the grass. Focus on working well in your jobs. Work with your hands. The Greeks despised physical labor. And Paul is, is, is rebuking that. He says, work with your hands. We as Christians believe in the value of ordinary physical labor. It's God-glorifying. He designed it. But instead, they had become busy. They, uh, you know, I'm sure if they could have, they probably would have watched Netflix all the time uh, back then. And so they had become busy. But Dallas Willard says this, Think what it says about the inward emptiness of our lives if we must always turn on the TV to make sure something is happening around us. Let me say it this way. Think what it says about the inward emptiness of our lives if we must always have our cell phones on in front of us. We're empty. It's that anxiousness that we're trying to to get rid of. We're trying to medicate it rather than dig into the gospel. In our angst... We tend to respond with the need for a big job or busyness. Uh, but the truth is, God's special plan for your life 
is going to typically mean you work an ordinary job. So graduates, it's absolutely okay, man. It's okay to work an ordinary job. Uh, you, you are not defined by your work. None of us are defined by our labors. Uh, we are defined by what Jesus has done. Michael Horton talks about the difficulty of the ordinary. He says, Facing another day with ordinary callings to ordinary people all around us is much more difficult than chasing my own dreams that I've envisioned for the grand story of my life. Other people, especially those closest to us, can become props. The poor can be instruments of our life project. Changing the world can be a way of actually avoiding the opportunities we have every day right where God has placed us to glorify and enjoy Him and to enrich the lives of others. We don't have to do extravagant things. Ordinary is enough. God is the extravagant in our work, not us. And so the Thessalonians had confused this. They had confused this with their need to work, and they had been neglecting their jobs. Instead, they were wanting to just stir up all sorts of trouble and busy themselves with things unrelated. Listen to uh, Tish Warren. She was a, a missionary superstar in her 20s. She talks about this. Uh, as she reflects on it later on. She says, Now that I'm 30-something with two kids living a more or less ordinary life, and what I'm slowly realizing is that for me, being in the house all day with a baby and a two-year-old is a lot more scary and a lot harder than being in a war-torn village in Africa. What I need is courage for the ordinary. Caring for a homeless kid is a lot more thrilling to me than listening well to the people in my home. Giving away my clothes and seeking out edgy Christian communities requires less of me than being kind to my husband on an average Wednesday morning or calling my mother back when I don't feel like it. What I'm trying to say, guys, is Jesus' return has everything to do with how we treat the mundane. Your mundane rhythms matter. How you treat those in your home how you work in your job, how you live next to your neighbor, those things all matter because of the gospel. Those things all matter because they're how we reflect our belief in the gospel. We don't have, you're, you, if, if Paul didn't have a high view of God, he would have said something completely different here. Here's what he would have said. He would have said, all right, concerning brotherly love, keep loving one another. Instead of telling us to work with our, his, with our hands, you know what he said? He said, you guys all need to quit your jobs and you need to go and become missionaries. You all need to be pastors and you all need to teach the Bible to everybody all the time, always. That's not what he says. He says, guys, go home. Take care of your home. Take care of your family. Work hard. And in doing so, we honor Jesus. So you're not in disobedience because you're working hard to run your house well. You're not skipping out on mission opportunities because you're trying to build a relationship with those who live on your street. You're not missing out on missionary opportunities because you're in your home eating with your family. Though I hope our ministry will move beyond our homes, if we can't get it in our homes, what is it beyond our homes? What do we have to show them if we can't even run our homes around the gospel? A passerby once stopped at a massive construction site and asked what everyone was doing. Hauling dirt, replied one. Cutting stones, said another. Building a cathedral, said a third. All true. For the only way to build a beautiful church is to do a great deal of mundane, unglamorous labor and to do it conscientiously well. 
the impatient desire to be radical and extraordinary, to hasten the coming of the next big thing, interrupts the humble work required to accomplish something excellent. A quote by Dr. Moore says, Spirituality that is biblically radical will seek to live in light of the gospel in the daily and ordinary. Guys, if you're wanting to land a dream job, my question for you is, how are you doing helping your parents out around the house? If we can't take care of the mundane in our homes, we're not prepared to work outside of the home. If Husbands, you want, to, you want a promotion at work, how are you doing serving your wife in the home? How are we doing in the mundane, in the routine? So, church, we're not defined by how big our impact is. We're not defined by how big our job is. We're called to be an ordinary church with ordinary jobs and lifestyles. And that's okay. And so the last thing then is ordinary mission. If you'll look at verse 12 with me. A lot of people, what they'll say is, well, Taylor, that sounds really unmissional of you. I mean, gosh, if you just want me to focus on my home and you just want me to focus on my job, you're not really interested in outsiders. Okay, let's look at what the text says. He tells them to love one another, to mind their work, and then in verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. So that you may walk properly before outsiders. The point is this, that everything that we do in life says something to the outside world about Jesus Christ. So to take care of our jobs, to take care of our families is missional. Not only in that we're discipling our families, but the outside world is looking in going, man, that's, good. that's going well. They're hard workers. That doesn't mean we don't have mistakes, but what they see is there's a love there. And there's a hard work ethic there. What is it about these Christians and their God that makes them work in such a way? Why can they be content with mundane tasks? Brother Lawrence, a monk, said, It is not necessary that I have great things to do. I flip my little omelet in the pan for God. He, he, people all around the world came to Brother Lawrence because he did absolutely simple tasks, cleaning dishes, making omelets, and he was the most content man the world had ever seen at his time. And it was, not, it was because his identity wasn't in his work. It wasn't in his, his value. He didn't tie his value to his work or to how much he produced or how big he was. He simply saw who God was and the mercy that he received in Christ. And he lived to communicate that through simple faith, faithfulness. And the world wanted to know why. First Peter 3.1, talking about the wife with an unbelieving husband, says, Wives... Be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. It is not anti-mission to do your job well. You have to be hyper-Jesus-focused, though. And I don't mean you're screaming Jesus at everybody you run to while you're working. But what I mean is... You have to find your delight and peace in Christ if you're going to be content to work mundane jobs well. It must be our desire to honor Him. Listen to uh, Rosaria Butterfield. She, she, was, um, she was an ex-lesbian. Uh, who She was an atheist, a skeptic. She was trying to basically tear down Christianity everywhere she could find it. And uh, she was a PhD out of Syracuse University. And she spent a lot of time attacking promise keepers. You guys know of the men's conference, Promise Keepers? And uh, so uh, she had, she'd written articles. And Ken Smith saw her article. Uh, this was a, a Christian near her. And, and just invited her to his home to talk about what she was writing against the conference. 
And so a friend encouraged her. He said, go, since it's going to help you in your research against Christianity. She says, I went as a user and a manipulator, but I left as a friend. The call of the Christian is to be good neighbors. Ken was a noticeable or a notable encounter because he did not share the gospel with me that night. He didn't invite me to church, which made me wonder if I was chopped liver because I knew the script. He was explicitly Christian, though. That night began a two-year experience of these Christian neighbors bringing their church to me. I did not believe my friendship with Ken was contingent upon a faith commitment. He made it clear that my neighbors are to look out for one another, or that neighbors are to look out for one another. He also made it clear that he couldn't approve of my relationship, but that didn't mean he couldn't accept me right where I was. If Christians can't interrupt the, the sense of perpetual loneliness in our culture, then who will? Getting to the heart of how we reach this culture. How do you reach a tired and exhausted culture? A simple, quiet life. Faithfulness to the relationships that people are used to seeing neglect in. And being a good neighbor and working hard. Now, if you're already exhausted, just as, a, as an American in general, you, what you just heard was a bunch of commands that are really hard for you to fulfill. And so here's what I want you to see. That's, that's not all Paul is saying here. Go to 1 Thessalonians 5, and we're going to close with this. 1 Thessalonians 5, looking at verse 9. Everything Paul just said to this church, he's saying this because he believes in these verses here. He says, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. And so what's the secret then, guys? Graduates, church, if we're going to be content with an ordinary church, an ordinary lifestyle, an ordinary mission, the secret is to knowing what Christ has done for us. I mean to really believe it in a way in which you receive rest. Not, I'm going to leave church today, go eat, and then go home and Netflix all afternoon and wonder why I'm still anxious. Because Netflix doesn't medicate you. It, it just numbs you for a little bit and then it's going to come back. Or whatever medication you use. See, if you're an atheist, what you're going to say is, well, God doesn't exist and that's my justification for doing what I want and expressing my anxiety however I want. If you're, if you're a Christian, what you'll be tempted to say is, well, I'm just going to stay really, really busy instead of getting to a quiet place with God and deal with the fact that I'm not trusting Him. But that will never work, guys. You will get exhausted. You will grow, uh, you will go, grow either self-righteous or burnt out trying to please and serve everyone, even God. The answer to this societal angst is that we slow down and realize we're not defined by what we do. You're not defined by your job. You're not defined by how excellent your church is. You're defined by Jesus who has absorbed the wrath of God and you are now righteous. I built a bed for Bryce a year ago, which should surprise everyone, because um, I can't do anything like that, but somehow we made a bed. And I, I built this bed for him, and we, we put him in it every night, and uh, most nights he climbs out and he sleeps right next to the door. I can't explain it. I don't think I did that bad of a job, but he climbs out of his bed and he sleeps there, and he doesn't sleep well, and he suffers because of it. But once you see, I've provided a place for him to rest, and he refuses to rest there. How much more foolish are we when the God 
of the universe has provided rest for us on the cross, and yet we continue to try to rest in our work ethic. It will not sustain you. You will get burnt out. If you are exhausted, the call is come to Christ. His, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Come to me, you who are weary. He has come to give us rest. How? Not by, not by giving you a bunch of commands to make you look moral, but by literally saying, you can't do this. You can't be amazing. We're fallen, but we are paid for in Jesus. So the call is not come and fix yourself. The call is, would you receive the righteousness of Christ that has been put on you by our unrighteousness being nailed to the cross? So would you bow your heads with me this morning? I just want to invite anybody during the worship time, if you are anxious and you're tired of trying to please the world, tired of trying to to live up to the expectations that you placed on yourself, the call this morning is that you would give up that identity and that you would hear what the Father has done for you in Jesus Christ. If you reject this, you are in God's wrath. So the call is know that His wrath has been poured out on Jesus so that we would know Him. So let's go to Him in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus. We confess, Lord, that we are exhausted. We are so busy trying to build our identity on things that don't last, on things that don't matter. We confess, Lord, that we just can't, we're not the ones who can hold this life together. And so I pray that anybody in this room, Lord, that who's wrestling with that, that they would just give that up. They would quit trying to medicate their anxiousness and that they would receive what you alone have done. Only you can do it. Pray that they would believe that you have died for them and have made a way. And I pray they'd repent and believe. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. graduates. We thank you for this life that you've given us. We pray we would not cheapen the ordinary tasks. We pray that we would go with an excitement to honor you because you have made all of these tasks meaningful. And so may we work diligently as we wait for your son's return. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.